Right. Good morning, Crossway. Uh, such a privilege always to be able to share God's word with you guys. Uh, I have a uh, exercise that I want us to do, uh, just a little icebreaker. If we could turn to our neighbors and answer this one question. If you came upon a large sum of money, or maybe you won the lotto or inheritance or whatever it is, you came upon the ridiculous amount of money that you can't even count, what would be your one splurge purchase, right? Now, I know everyone here is, you know, they're godly, they're responsible, you know, they're going to give, you know, 50% to their church, some to their family, and all this stuff, right? You know, take care of bills and all that. No, but the splurge purchase, what, what would be that one splurge purchase? So share it with uh, the neighbor or the people around you. All right, what are some... Some of the things that you guys said. What, what are some splurge purchases that you guys would make? You just blurt it out. You don't have to reach. Clippers season tickets. Okay. Good, good. House, car. Well, Clippers, I feel like you could just buy it right now. It's probably like $50. Uh, okay. Awesome, awesome. All right. All right. What we need to do is set our sights a little bit higher, okay? I thought about this. When I was in college, I, I determined that if I came across a large sum of money, you know, too ridiculous to count, I would buy myself an island, right? An island. Did you know that you can buy islands online? There's a, there's a website. I was looking at it. It's called privateislandsonline.com. And you just scroll through all the different islands that are for sale. And based on, you know, where it's located, you know, if it's a beach shore, if it's rocky, based on how large it is, whatever it is, what location, you can buy an island. And I, I found one that you can actually buy for a million dollars. I thought that was pretty cheap. Well, that was like 15 years ago, so I don't know if it's still a million dollars now, but the point is, you can buy an island. And you can buy one in like Canada, although it'd be really cold and it'd be really rocky. You can buy one near Fiji. There's all these islands, but I would buy an island. Because if you think about it, if you own an island, you are now the supreme sovereign leader of that island, right? There's no one else. You set the rules, you set the laws. You are the leader, president of that land. I can literally make up a rule that says if you come and you want to see me, you have to crawl to me. That's the law. And it would be so because I set the rules. If I said Wednesday is when the weekend starts and everyone gets five-day weekends, or I could even say from now on, there's eight days in the week. Or I'll be unbiblical, but, you know, I can make up any law I want. And it would be okay because it would be my island, right? And so, you know, you can tell I've thought about this a lot, right? And I've thought through the logistics and I, you know, I thought, okay, if I were to own an island and it was my nation, what are the first essential things that I need to first think about? It's, what am I going to drink, right? Because, you know, the islands have a lot of water, obviously, but you can't drink any of it. It's all salt water. What am I going to eat? You know, are there boars running around that I can kill and hunt and cook, or do I have to import it or whatever? The last one is, am I safe? Am I safe? Am I protected? Because, you know, for me, I am the sovereign ruler, but I don't have an army, you know? Now, anyone can invade, anyone can take over and try to take over my land, right? And so, am I safe? Who are my allies? Those are the things that I need to be very aware of, okay? Now, I bring up the silly illustration because 
Egypt or the Israelites as they're coming out of Egypt, these are the questions that they have because this is the first time they are becoming a nation, right? Remember, when the Israelites were first in Egypt, there wasn't the Israelites. It was just Joseph. You guys remember? Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. Remember, he had the Technicolor dream coat, and they ripped it all up. They put him in a pit. They sold him to Egypt, and he was there. He was by himself. And a famine occurred, and because of the famine, the Israelites or the, the brothers had to come. They found out through all these events that, you know, Joseph was still alive, and they lived together. Because of the famine, you know, Joseph took care of them, and they began to live in Egypt. You know, just, it was Jacob, his family, and that was it. It wasn't a nation, right? 400 years past, right? What we see in the beginning of Exodus is that this small family began to increase, right? In Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, it says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Exodus chapter 12 says that there were over 600,000 men, uh, not counting men and women. So probably more than a million people were in the nation of Egypt. But all they had known at that time was slavery, right? At this point, under Egypt, under the oppression of Pharaoh, they are slaves, so they've never, as a nation, experienced freedom. They've never known what it means to be a nation. Until this moment, when Moses finally, with the ten plagues, he's, Pharaoh has now said, finally, you guys leave, get out of here. And for the first time, they're experiencing freedom as a new nation, as the Israelites. And what we see throughout the book of Exodus is that they start to ask these fundamental questions. What am I going to drink? You know, they're walking through, wandering through a desert. And what we see in chapter 15 is that, you know, God changes this bitter water into water that's drinkable. In chapter 16, what are we going to eat? And God provides manna and quail for them to eat. And what we see in chapter 14 is that they experience their very first national crisis. And as they experience this, their question is, am I safe? Am I protected? You know, because now they're their new nation. Egypt is not going to protect them if any invaders come. And they're completely vulnerable. They're completely exposed now to anything and everyone. Right? And so because of that, they face this crisis. And it's even more evident by the fact that not only are they, you know, walking, God has now told them, hey, turn back. I want you to retrace your steps and come back to this other area. What we see in verse 2 in chapter 14 says, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. So God tells them, retrace your steps, come back, and I want you to camp right next to the Red Sea, or some people might say it's the Sea of Reeds. And that might not be an issue, right? But it becomes a problem because what we know is that Pharaoh changes his mind. You know, Pharaoh first lets them go, but after he leaves, or after they leave, he has a change of heart. And he says, you know what? I need my slave labor back. Verse 5 through 8, he says, When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed. 
toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. See that? So Pharaoh has a change of heart. He says, let's go. He takes a special ops, 600 chariots, along with all the other army chariots, and they're pursuing, pursuing the Israelites. And now the Israelites, the nation of Israelites, are in a predicament. They have the Red Sea behind them. Pharaoh is coming before them. And they are in a complete moment of crisis. They're going to drown if they run to the Red Sea. If they stay, they're going to be demolished. They're going to be killed by the Pharaoh and his Egyptians. And so in this most vulnerable and exposed time, when they're facing the crisis of their life as a nation for the first time, this is how they respond. Verse 10 through 12. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. What we see here is that, first of all, they're scared. They're complaining. And what they're actually saying, if you read between the lines, is, Moses, we did not want to be a free nation. You know, we, we were serving the Egyptians, and yeah, it was hard, but we had stuff to eat. We had things to drink. And even though work was hard and, you know, we, we, we faced a lot of hardship there, at least Egypt was protecting us that there was no other nation that was going to come and kill us. Why did you bring us out? And they're going through this. They're angry, they're frustrated, and they're scared. And they're complaining. We didn't want to be a new nation. Who is going to protect us now? You know, growing up, I would read the story of Exodus and see the life of Israel and see how they would complain and God would take care of them and then they would complain again and how God would take care of them. And I would see it over and over and over and I would think, man, these Israelites, they just don't get it. They're so dumb, right? God saves them again and again and again and again and yet they continue to complain. And here we see God had just done this amazing thing with the ten plagues and brought them out of Israel. And again, they don't have faith. They don't trust God. And I thought, that, they're so ridiculous. But as I've grown, as I've gone through, you know, the Christian life, I've noticed more of my flaws, my inadequacies. And I've noticed more of myself how I'm just like the Israelites, right? When things are going well, I'm like, oh, thank you, Lord. And then a crisis hits. Something difficult comes around, and I'm like, God, where are you? God, do you hate me? God, why is this happening to me? And we struggle, and we complain. You know, maybe some of you guys are going through a financial hardship. You know, maybe we face this, where you're barely meeting, meeting meets end, and you're, you're barely paying the rent, and all of a sudden you get a ticket, and it's $500. And you're like, God, why, why would you allow that to happen to me? God, are you punishing me? What, what are you thinking, God? And we, when we complain. I, 
maybe you're going through a relational problem or some, uh, there's a family member that's sick and you're like, God, why are you putting them through this? God, why are you punishing us? Why are you putting us through these difficult crises? And we complain. And we're frustrated. And we fear. And sometimes, because of that, we'll rebel. We'll say, God, you know, if you're not going to take care of me, you know what? I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to worship. I don't want to follow after a God that doesn't take care of me. No, I don't want to do this church thing, this Christian thing. And we rebel. Or we complain. And we, we turn away from God during times of crisis. Now, my hope and prayer is that as we look at Moses' words to Israel, that they would be God's words to us. That for us who have gone through crisis, who, who are experiencing crisis at the moment, or who will experience crisis, all of us will guarantee experience crisis or hardship in our lives. Now, my hope and my prayer is that Moses' words would be God's words to you. This is what God says. Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he, has, he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Tell them three things that I think we could take to heart. First one is, do not fear. Do not be afraid. Do not be scared. When you face hardship, when you are in a crisis, you know, Moses is telling them to not be afraid while there seems like there's no hope in sight, right? The Red Sea is behind them, the Egyptians are coming, and it's total chaos. They don't know what to do. And, God, and God's telling through Moses, do not be afraid. See the salvation of the Lord. He will fight for you, right? In verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. He is on your side. He will protect you. And this is God's promise. Because this is now my nation. You guys have been freed. You guys are now a nation, but now you're my nation. You're a people for God. I am your protector. I am your provider. I am your joy. I am your satisfaction. I am the God of this nation. I will protect you. Just do not fear. You know, when you were under Egypt's rule, you didn't fear that the Philistines or somewhere else would come and attack you because you felt the prote protection of Egypt. Well, now, as a nation under God, I will protect you. I will be with you. I will keep you. Just do not fear. Second thing he says is to stand by. He says, fear not. Stand by. You know, move to the side. I'm going to take care of this. Not you. Me. Not Moses. Me. God says, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to be on your side, and I will do it. I'm going to fight for you. That's what he says. And he wants to make it clear that this is the nation of God. It's not Moses' nation. It's not the Israelites' nation. This is God's nation. And God says, I will protect you. The Lord is the protector. He is the defender. You know, there is a certain comfort that comes uh, from knowing that he is our protector, right? That he is 
that he'll take care of it. When you're at work, right, and you have all this work to do, and then it's about time to end, and your boss comes and says, can you take care of this, this, and this before you leave? You're a little frustrated, and, if you're bo- and then a coworker comes and says, hey, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. There's a certain sense of comfort with that, right? If you know, you're financially struggling, and you have all these bills to pay, and someone comes up to you and says, hey, you know, I heard you're having a hard time, and don't worry about it. I want to take care of it. I- I'll, I'll be here for you, you know? That's, there's a certain sense of comfort in that. You know, wives, if you're you know, struggling at home, there's a billion things to do, and your husband comes up to you and says, hey, I'm going to take care of it. You go have a spa day, go, go to Nordstrom or whatever it is, I'll take care of it. There's a certain sense of comfort with that, right? I'm going to take care of it, God says. Now, for some of you guys who worry incessantly, those examples that I gave do not comfort you. Because you hear it and you're like, my husband's going to take care of it? Right. I'm going to come home and there's going to be more work to do, right? You think, hey, that guy's going to help me with my finances. He better know that I have a deadline, there's bills to pay, because does he even have enough money to take care of what I need to do? Because, you know, they better have enough money. And we begin to incessantly worry, right? We're called to stand by, God's going to fight for us, but we worry and worry and worry. And that's why I think this third part is very important for us. And this is what I want to really key in on and be the key for our message. He says to trust, to have faith. In moments of trial, in moments of crisis and hardship, God calls us to trust in him. In Hebrews 11, uh, verse 29, there's a description of the Hebrews during this whole time. And this is what it says about them. It says, By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. This is what it's all about, that they trusted in the Lord, and the Lord was the one that provided a way out for them. We all know the story. The Red Sea is behind them. Egyptians are coming. They cry out to God. Moses says, do not be afraid. And what ends up happening is that God parts the Red Sea. They're able to walk through it. And as the Egyptians are coming, God closes the waters on them. And the Egyptians, it's interesting what they say, as that's happening, it says, the Lord fights for them. And they recognized it. They recognized that it was the Lord that fought for them. And afterwards, they trust. They begin to trust in the Lord. Now, the Lord is our protector. And this is what I want to really share with us, that the Lord will protect you. He's on your side. He will keep you. But I have to clarify this because there are some times in our lives where we felt in moments of crisis that no one responded, right? Just being honest. There's times in our lives where we face a difficult situation and you felt like, God, I cried out to you, but there was no answer. There was no response. I don't know what I got from it. I don't know what I learned from this. There is no, it just happened. In those moments, I want to share with us a little bit more about what it means to walk in faith. Right? There's uh, a story that Ravi Zacharias shared. And I saw this on Facebook. A lot of you guys were posting it, and I thought it was a really good story that highlights what we're trying to say here. But he's a theologian, a scholar, apologist. And what he says, he shares a story about this man. This man, you know, he had a farm, 
and he had a horse. And the horse one day ran away. And so his neighbor comes up to him and says, hey, man, you are cursed. God must not love you. How, how did he let your horse run away? He's like, I don't know. A few days later, the horse comes back, but he comes with another group, a herd of more wild horses, or with wild horses, like five or six of them. And the neighbor comes up to him and goes, you are blessed. I can't believe that God provided you all these horses for you to take care of. You're rich. Guy goes, yeah, I don't know. That's just the way it is. A couple days later, as the man's son is trying to tame one of the horses, the horse bucks and kicks the kid's leg and breaks his leg. The neighbor comes up to him and goes, you are cursed. I can't believe that God would send these wild horses to hurt your son like that. Dad's like, I don't know. This is the way it is. A few days later, a gang comes, a mafia comes, and they're looking to recruit able-bodied men, sons, to recruit into their gang. They see that this son has a broken leg. They can't do anything with him, so they leave him. The neighbor comes and says, you are so blessed. I can't believe that your son's leg was broken at the exact right time. You are one who is blessed. And the story, you know, it kind of goes on. And it's kind of silly. But the point is saying, you know, all of us, we look at the way God responds to us in these small little moments, right? And we think we're blessed, we're cursed, God's here, God's not there. By each of these crises, each of these blessings. But what Ravi Zacharias was sharing was, our wisdom is so finite, it's so small. Why don't we entrust our entire life to the Lord? Because he has the entire life. He knows the entire scope of our life and how each one is going to work and help and move in us. Why don't we leave up the blessing and the cursing to God? And God will take care of it. Because we think we know everything that's going on. But no. God, in his infinite wisdom, has our life in control. And he's protecting us, and he's guiding us. He's watching over us. So what that means is that we trust him in every moment of our lives, in crisis, in good times, in hardships, and difficulties, and trials. We say, God, I trust in you. No matter what the circumstances. What that means is that <clears throat> we have to be okay with loose ends. We have to be okay with the fact that there are sometimes we don't realize or recognize why things are happening in our lives. You know, we're so instant culture, right? When something bad happens or when something happens, we want to know why this happened. God, please reveal this to me. Let me know why this happened so I can tie this up in a neat bow, package it in my life, remember it, and then go on and do the next thing, do the next thing. But God sees our entire life. And what that means is we have to be okay with loose ends. We have to be okay with having a situation here where we have no idea what, why this was going on. The only thing that God requires is that we trust him, that we walk faithfully in every circumstance. And that's what the Egyptians were, or that's what the Israelites were doing, right? They're in this national crisis, and they say, okay, we'll trust. They walk through the waters. Standing by doesn't just mean that you sit on your uh, chair and do nothing. 
but it means that you walk and you're faithful. Hebrews 11, 39 through 40, it says, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. They did not receive what was promised. Earlier on in that passage, it talks about how the Hebrews, you know, walked through the Red Sea in faith. But now here we see, he says, but they did not receive what was promised. In the course of their entire life, they were waiting for that promise, but they did not receive what was promised. The loose ends were not tied. It was not a neat bow at the end of their life, and they're like, oh, now I get it. But what this is pointing to is that there's something greater that we have to look forward to. There's the reason why we don't have a neat bow in our lives here today is because God wants us to look at something greater, at eternity, at the salvation that he has for us at the end. He wants us to have faith that not just, it's not just about these individual moments, but it's about what God has in store for us on that last day that he's protecting us and keeping us until that last day. That's the greater treasure. That's the greater uh, salvation that God wants us to look forward to. Now, you and I now, we live a life of faith. You know, these Exodus, in Exodus uh, 14, these Israelites now have crossed the Red Sea, and now they begin this new life apart from the Egyptians, now with God as their father, right, as their leader. And what we see again and again in Exodus is that they complain, and then God provides. They complain, and God saves, and they complain, and God provides, and, God, and they complain. And, and it's this cycle. And what we need to understand is that this is the beginning, the process of their faith journey. They're going through this process, and they're learning what it means to have a life that trusts the Lord for everything, for everything in their life, for their provisions, for their protection, for their joy, their satisfaction, everything. God is continually teaching them with every moment, hey, don't provide for yourself. I'm the provider for you. Don't protect yourself. I'm the protector for you. Don't try to find satisfaction in others. I'm your satisfaction. And the Israelites... That's what he's taking them through as, they're as they are wandering through the desert. God is continually revealing to them, trust in me. I am your all. This is the beginning of it. Exodus 14, 30-31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. This is just the, the start in their journey. For us as believers, as people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, there's so many parallels that we can see from this. You and I were slaves, just as the Israelites were. We were slaves to sin. Sin had enslaved us, brought us down, but we had been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. He has brought us out of the slavery of sin. We now have freedom in Christ. And just like the Israelites, he's teaching us now what it means to live a life that's constantly trusting in God. 
What does it mean to constantly place your faith in God to be your provider, to be your sustainer, to be your protector, and all of these things? It's about faith. The bottom line is God wants us to trust in him continually in all times. And the crisis that we face, the hardships that we face, the trials, all of these things are drawing us closer to him, to a greater trust in him. And so that's my prayer for us, that we as a church would understand more and more every single day, the Lord is our provider, the Lord is our protector, that he will fight for us. Lord is our joy giver, and that we would increase in our faith and our trust in him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, as you brought the Israelites out of slavery, God, we praise you for bringing us out of slavery of sin, bringing us into a relationship with you. And God, as you teach us, God, increase our faith. Show us how to trust in you. Give us the strength and the courage to trust in you in crisis and hardships, when we're lacking. God, I pray that you would take your rightful place as the Lord, as the God, as the King of our church, of, of each and every one of our lives, that we would trust in you for all things, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for leading us out of slavery and in this new life. And we want to live in faith. Thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.